Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Today on First Lady and Friends, I had a return guest, uh, Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women's Leadership Project, as well as a new guest, Casey Malou from the Malou Foundation. We were speaking about their upcoming symposium, and it's called Affecting Societal Change for Children. Child Sex Abuse Symposium, and we had a, an amazing conversation about how we can get ahead of this problem of child sex abuse. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get proximate. Today on First Lady and Friends, we have uh, a returning guest and then a new guest. We're really excited to have Dr. Susan Madsen, who is a returning guest. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for being here again. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And Casey Maloof, uh, we've we've done some things with the Maloof Foundation, and we know you're connected in with with um, the. Elizabeth Smart Foundation, and we have loved having her on the program and talking about really important things that she's working on and that you guys are working on together. Casey, I'm so excited to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And um, we we want to talk about, you guys have a really incredible event coming up, and that's that's why we have you here today. It's something that we've talked about on the program, like I said, with, with Elizabeth Smart. We've also had people uh, from... From Sapria, and they've. This is a topic very dear to their hearts, and hoping to be joined by our friend Matt from Sapria uh, in a little bit. But let's talk about what what you have coming up um, that that is bringing us all together here today. Well, I I um, reached out initially to Sapria um, and then the Maluth Foundation because I really have felt compelled. Um, to kind of lean in and step forward in terms of the child sexual abuse issue. It affects so many, you know, you know, Abby, all the work that I do around girls and women, and it affects so many girls and women. Um, and women, you know, when they were abused as children, that goes with them the rest of their life. So what we decided to do between the Utah Women and Leadership Project and the Maloof Foundation and Sapria is put together this uh, morning symposium. So it's October 26th, and it's from 8.30 to 11.30. And it's specific, not just general information, but it's specific on how we can affect change regarding this issue in the state of Utah specifically. Mm-hmm. And so we're excited to be able to present information, but also have a variety of panel discussions and breakout sessions on various things from companies, you know, um, what companies can do to engage and how they can engage, but also in relationship to understanding more deeply the issue and how child sexual abuse actually affects so many other things. And you know, Casey, so many, much more than I do probably about this issue, but yeah. we're excited for this. Yes, this we are too. And, and, Casey, talk a little bit about your involvement and and why maybe you and your company have been so passionate about this and and really bringing attention to this issue. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the biggest things that we talk about within our foundation and a big part of the work we do is just educating people about this issue. Because I think, you know, um, when we started the Malou Foundation, we didn't really know that much about sexual abuse or sexual violence and it was kind of through the work that we were we were giving away our product we were giving away our bedding which is what what we make for our you know our core company Maloof companies and we were giving that away and we were hearing stories of survivors and people who had just been through these horrible things and we were just shocked that like 
I guess we had just lived these like happy fairy tale sheltered lives, but like we just didn't know it was happening. And so that just really sh- like it it was just hard to accept the fact that we were living in this bubble that we didn't know um that it was happening so frequently around us. And so that's why we were we really felt like this was one of the core issues that that we really wanted to address through the work that we do at the Malou Foundation. Um so I think just this, the symposium that we're doing and we're really excited about, but a lot of it is just about getting the conversation going. Like, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how we can come together and solve the issue, but also just like shine a light on it and talk about the fact that it's happening in our communities because we like to think it's not because we feel safer that way. So. Yeah, no, and and we've again we've had this conversation a little bit, and I've expressed you know some of the some of the things in in our family that we've seen, and and frankly, you know, I I get really passionate about the prevention piece, and like how do we stop this from happening? Obviously, we want to connect um, with everyone that that this is that has experienced this type of trauma. And and help them. And it's not a it's not a death sentence. It's not a you're broken sentence. It's a this happened to you and it's it's not okay. And how do we move forward? So let's let's maybe address this idea that that, you know, how do we start preventing this problem? Can I can I go back real quick? Because I think some of the listeners may be like so many other people in the state, including what Casey just talked about, that really it's it's been silenced in our state. Yep. And um, people haven't, they don't know. A lot of people, when I'm talking about these things, they're looking at me with these big eyes. They're like, that couldn't be the case. So generally speaking, one in five children in our state will experience sexual abuse. And in the data that I speak about for women often, one in three women will go through at some time in their life sexual assault, and one in six will be raped in the state of Utah, which is Mm -hmm. above the national average. And 79% of those rapes occur before the age of 18. So when we're talking about one in five or one in six, this means that it's, if I'm teaching a class, it's going to be many women in the class. It's going to be people in our families, in our neighborhood, just on our little street, that there's going to be people affected. So it's not just in a certain part of town or in a certain part of the state. It's on our street. It's in our church congregations. It's in our classes. It's in our schools. And so I just think that's so important for us to shine a light on, as you said, that this is not something that only affects, um, you know, one in a thousand or whatever. This is our families. This is our lives. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of surprised that people are surprised. Mm. Um. Because if if that many and and like you say, because we're not talking about it, um, you know, just in my own little circle, I I know family members and friends whose children have been abused, um, and I I just I, I I'm surprised that people are surprised because I think it does hit everyone, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. This this is happening. So, Casey, talk a little bit about that and and maybe you know what what you foresee shining the light doing. Well, I think prevention work can sometimes it's it's maybe it's hard to gauge the effect you're having, right? Yeah. Because you're preventing it before it happens and so how do you track that? How do you say like you're having an effect? But I think um Talking about it, things like the symposium, um, we have a training through our foundation. It's called On Watch Training. It's specifically more for sex trafficking, but it helps you recognize and then be able to report the signs of trafficking around you. But, I mean, it's been interesting, just like Susan and you were saying, you know, we had all of our employees that moved to take the training. There was about 400 people at the time that had taken the training, and we had three women come forward and say, I thought I'd just been sexually abused, but actually I'd been trafficked. Like, and they were women that we knew and women. So when we say like, you know, it's happening around you, but you kind of don't want to believe it. Um, I mean, that's just an example of that. Like Mm -hmm. people come forward all the time and, and talk about it. Um, Another one of the things that we're working on in November, um, when, when we joined forces with the Elizabeth Smart Foundation earlier this year, 
um, there was a program that they had that, that Elizabeth is really passionate about and we're really passionate about. And it's called We Believe You. And mm-hmm. all it is is just Elizabeth's work of all these 20 years that she spent working with survivors and having women reach out to her um, was just one of the biggest themes that she kept hearing over and over again was that she was afraid that or the, these women were afraid that they were not going to be believed. Like mm-hmm. I can talk about it and I can tell people, but I don't think that people will believe me. And so the We Believe You campaign is super simple. You go online, you take a pledge, you can purchase um, jewelry or a T-shirt, but it really is all just all 100% focused on helping people understand how important it is to believe survivors. Um, only 2% of people that claim to be sexually abused or have sexual violence, only 2% are ever making it up. Like the the numbers are really, really low. And so if somebody discloses to you, you always believe first because, mm-hmm. you know, 99% of the time that happened to them. And so just being able to be a safe place for people, it's really just an awareness campaign. And then also just encouraging people to come forward and share it because um, a lot of the work like Sapria does with their retreats and all all that important work that they're doing that I think is so amazing, like women can't get to that place where they can heal if they don't talk about it and admit that it's happened. Yeah. I did a piece uh, maybe two or three months ago for uh, the Salt Lake Tribune called Believe Her. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, for child sexual abuse, but for sexual abuse and domestic violence, all of those, that's such a low percentage are really have been found to be lying. And, there, and there's some mental health issues when you yeah. do that. But, you know, for the most part, if someone tells is that's a big risk for them, that's a, that's traumatic for them to even talk about it. We need to believe everyone. That's always just like the first step. Like even if maybe you don't think it's but you believe like even if you have questions like you the way that you respond to that person when they disclose something like that to you has such a huge effect on yeah. how they're going to be able to their healing journey and how that how they'll be able to navigate that. And so start by believing always. And so um you know, and that goes into the prevention work too, where it's just like, again, raising awareness about the issue. So, yeah, that's, that's incredible. I think, um, I think we all went through a moment where we had to reflect, at least I did when, you know, sort of these, the Me Too movement and things that started to happen. I think a lot of, we just saw people coming out and saying like, this happened to me. Um, I think it, it, it was, I don't know, for me, I actually looked back in my past and, thought of some, I mean, definitely some sexual harassment that went on in a workplace that I had kind of like pushed away because I didn't think about it. And I actually had the ability to talk to my daughter about like, this did happen. And this, we need to think about how we react because I don't think I reacted in the way I should have, or at least in that moment had the ability to. And um, I think as we train our our young people how to respond, um, they I think we can give them the power and at least take their power back. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. I want to I want to touch on something, uh, Susan, that you said about you know these numbers and, and what that means and what kinds of outcomes are you seeing from this trauma and, and, and the results of that trauma. And I want to do that when we come right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
We are back here with uh, Dr. Susan Madsen and Casey Maloof. We are speaking about uh, affecting social change for child sexual abuse and the symposium that you're doing. Um, and um, this is really important. It's an, a really important topic that I, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like we can talk enough about. <laughs> I think the more we talk about this and the more comfortable people are disclosing, we are going to we are going to root out predators. We're going to not give them a space to do what they're they're doing. Yeah. Um, we're going to bring them out of the dark. Um, I want to get into this this idea of, you know, what are the, what are the effects of, of these things? And we we refer to or we meaning the you know, the professionals in this space refer to uh, some of these things as adverse childhood experiences. And they can be a number of things. It can be sexual abuse and physical abuse. It can it can be a, a divorce. Um, that's an adverse childhood experience. It can be several of these things. I mean, my husband has talked very openly and candidly about his, he's a five aces kid. And these are, these are, again, these are not indicators of how your life is going to turn out. But there are some of those things that can can affect the way you process things, and that trauma is it's really important. So let's talk about first of all, how do these aces affect us and our brain development, and and what are we doing to to maybe overcome some of that? Well, that's a great question. So uh, I think you know the more you have, the more ACEs or adverse childhood experiences you have, the more likely you will have certain kinds of, uh, you're connected to adverse things in your life. And child sexual abuse is one of those. And a couple of statistics, um, this one just is really heartbreaking, that children who experience sexual abuse are at least three times more likely to attempt suicide. Mm. So that, um, and later in life, and as they get older, and, you know, the the suicide attempts uh, increases. Um so they're more likely to actually be obese when they're older if they've had child sexual assault. Um, high school dropout rates increase as much as 40% for survivors of childhood sexual abuse and six or 1.6 times more likely than the general population to use outpatient treatment for mental or physical abuse. And then um, there's many more, but I'll just mention one more. Um, Child sexual abuse uh, is really associated with increased rates of of drug use, substance uh, use, um, and also alcoholism. So there, there are things, you know, every single person that goes through that will have negative effects. There's things that we can do. We can jump into that, but, uh, but Casey might have some other statistics on top of mind. But um, it's important to, th- to just understand how serious... Um, this is for for one in five or one in six, whatever the numbers are, on the impact of of so many things later in their lives. Yeah, Casey, you talked about your experiences meeting with people that have experienced this adverse childhood experience or or have been sexually assaulted. What are the what are the things they're they're talking about or they're telling you? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, just like what you were saying earlier, just kind of when you had encountered maybe some inappropriate workplace behavior, but your brain wants to tell you that like it's not a big deal or, you know, you don't want to believe that something negative is happening to you because then you have to deal with it. And that's hard and requires a lot of work. But I think um, the biggest thing, you know, working with survivors and some of the things they say are just, you know, like I, I didn't know I had a choice or I didn't know I, – I thought that I would disappoint this person or I thought that it was normal or I thought – you know, so your brain does all kinds of things yeah. to prov- like to shield you from kind of that trauma. But the fact is that that trauma will, will be there and is a cloud over you um, and there's so much that you can do to work through that. Like I love – what Sapria does with their retreats when they take women and they really like the the outcomes of from their retreats and the way those women feel after the mm-hmm. statistics are just astounding. But I think um, getting people the help they need, believing them, talking about it, um, and then kind of training up this next generation to know that that's not okay, right? And we have to we have to figure out how to to stop that cycle, and that's a that's a huge task. So yeah, yeah. yeah well, I mean. 
what are the where do we find hope that maybe we can stop the cycle? Maybe we can, you know, do the prevention work that actually makes a difference. Yeah, I I really think the prevention work is just critical. We have not in the state of Utah for child sexual abuse, but also domestic violence and sexual abuse. We haven't had funding for prevention. Um, Most federal funding comes to us for really helping the survivors, right, and the victims. Um, But one thing I want to point out, and then I'll get directly to your question, is uh, we have to do more prevention, right? But one thing that that Chris Yaden has taught me at Supriya, a previous guest as well, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, is that nearly 50% of all sex abuse instances our incidents uh, against children are actually committed by children that are younger yes. than 18 years old with the peak age around 14. And so that's one thing he taught me, but, but the staff have also taught me how important it is for parents to talk to their kids about this. And the key, this was my biggest aha when he told me this, that... Um, child with the skills or with the language to talk about this is five, is five times more likely to actually talk to their parents or an adult about it, which is part of the healing process, but also five times more likely to have a better recovery. And, and I, I, I don't know, recovery is not the best word. I, I'm not sure what the word is exactly, but to be able to heal and be able to actually function better in life and so forth if they're able to talk about it. So prevention, um, if parents talk to their kids, it's two-part. One, their kids who may be abused or, or, or be in that situation have some language or, or get cues so they can, you know, kind of push that away. But also it helps, especially those teenage boys. And it, it, if parents talk to them, it's less likely that they will abuse. So it's mm. double. Yeah. And so I think, I hope I explained that yeah. well enough. But to me, that's really profound. And the thing is, too, I think that, you know, parents are not going to talk to their kids about it if they don't know that it's happening. They don't hear the statistics or they don't believe the statistics. Um, it was interesting. Last night we had a launch event for one of our new um, programs called Raise, which is an app that um, is free. You can download it and it helps you understand how to introduce technology to your kids. And it focuses on several different areas, um, cyberbullying, inappropriate content, just all types of things like that. But um, we had an event last night. We had several speakers kind of TED, TED style talks where we were talking about the issue and the main theme throughout the whole thing, honestly, and what hit me the most hearing all the speakers was just that you have to have a close relationship with your kids mm-hmm. and you have to be able to stay close to them and to love them no matter um, if they're not making the choices that you think that they should. But you have to be able to have an open relationship where you can communicate with them, where they know that you love them, that you are there for them. And when you have that that ability to communicate with them, talking about those kinds of things is so much easier and they're so much more receptive and it really just starts with that um positive reinforcement you know mm-hmm. looking at the positive in a child instead of the negative and really focusing on that and then being able to control your reactions to situations where you know your kids are doing things you don't want them to do and being able to overlook that and and focus on the positive and then just how you communicate with your kids is so important so that's i think that's such a big part of the prevention work too is getting parents on board where they can say I had to talk to my kids about this, but they're only going to listen if, you know, if we have a relationship of trust. And so that's such an important thing, too. Yeah. So how do we start to develop some of those skills as parents? I know I know it's tough. It may, you know, and I grew up in a house where, you know, my mom is is a wonderful person and just has so many wonderful qualities. Um, Maybe conversations were not the the like her highest, you know, talent. <laughs> and, you know, I had a dad that was pretty open. And, and so I had that relationship of, of of really being able to open up. But I mean, this is hard. This it's, is hard. it's hard anyway, let alone like, so, so how are we getting, 
I know Sapria has in, has done a lot of stuff with, you know, really giving parents the tools. I know they have a website that has a lot of these tools. How else can we get these tools in the hands of parents? I think Sapria does do an amazing job. And if I you're not following them on social media or whatever, I you know follow their Instagram. And every day it's just kind of like my daily dose of like, oh, yeah, like I'm remembering that I need to do that with my kids. Not every day. But I'm remembering that it's important and that it's something that I should be bringing up and talking to them about on a regular basis and just being comfortable with talking about things that I don't feel like my parents were very comfortable talking to me about um, sex, relationships, all those kinds of things and and, um, healthy relationships and just all those types of things are hard to talk about, probably because coming from a generation where it wasn't super comfortable and it wasn't super open and people didn't really talk about it, but making that um, making that conscious shift where even though it's awkward and I don't like it, I'm going to do it, right? And Sapria yeah. really does have amazing, amazing guides to help you be able to do that with your kids. Mm. And, you know, I think even my kids have been out of the house now since for about 10 years, so they're a little bit older. But I think this is a new day from even when my kids were – and if I knew more about how much sexual abuse is around, I probably would have had more open talks. But I love one of the articles that Sapria puts out specifically on um, emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. And you asked, Abby, like what can we do? Well, one of the things we can do is actually develop ourselves as parents and grandparents, and think about emotional regulation. So how do we react? How do we, I mean, all of us can be better at this, all of us, me included, right? But we, if we just, you know, shut down conversations or don't talk about certain things or get angry easily at certain things, that's how our kids are going to learn to react and they won't be open and have those close relationships. So I would just say that's that's one thing all of us can do is looking at emotional regulation and and just learn to be better listeners. Learn. There's great research out there. I love the growth mindset research that I think has application to all of these things. So if you haven't read Carol Dwick's book, not just surface articles on it, I would suggest that uh, because we all need to be in that growth mindset to learn and grow. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the speakers last night, it was was really interesting because he was talking about um, his struggle with pornography and how, you know, he was worried his parents always told him, like, you can come to me for anything, like, I won't get mad, whatever. But then he would like leave his clothes on the floor and his mom would get really mad, right? Which I get mad at my kids too. Yeah. But it's a normal <laughs> it's reaction. Nice but when he's, they move out. But in his <laughs> mind, I know, right? They're, they're hard roommates. Yeah. I just don't go in the basement anymore. I don't know yep. what's happening down yep, there. Yep, but that's I know what it's I mess. Just, yeah. Just shut but, the door. But then I don't say anything. So, but anyway, she, he said, you know, if she's mad about that and that's such a little thing, like if I tell her about this, like what, what is she going to do? I actually had an experience on the ride down here driving down from Logan. When my seventh grader called me from school and said, Mom, I I was in class and I was joking around with this girl and I pulled her chair out from behind her and she sat down on the floor and hit her head on the ground and oh, she no. has to go get checked out for a concussion. And oh, he was no. just, I could tell he was like so close to crying, you know, and I was just inside. I was like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> why would you do that? You know, but I was thinking about what I had learned last night and I was just like, took a couple breaths and I was like. <laughs> It's going to be okay. Like, I love you. It's okay. I know it was just a a bad decision and probably a choice you made in the moment and you're regretting it and I love you and it's okay, you know? And yeah. I and then I hung up and I was like, I called my husband and I was like, good for what you. What just happened, <laughs> you know, because, but he really is such a good kid. And I think just taking that breath to be like, oh, like that, that was wrong. You made a mistake, like yeah. for sure. Right. But being able to like still say like, I love you no matter what. Yeah. I always will. Like, but you have to prove that to them when they make a mistake like that. Yeah. Like, but but hopefully down the road, like if, if he does do something inappropriate online or with the girl, whatever it is, like that he will feel like if he discloses it to me or my husband, like we're not going to freak out, you know? Yeah. It sounds like so. he's a good kid and he'll probably punish himself. Oh my gosh. <laughs> More he was like it. crying. He was in the office just tearing up and I just felt bad for him. And I, I feel bad for the girl too, but I'm like, we, you know, just how do we, how you react to that. 
it really does affect how your kids will you know, interact with you down the road. Yeah. And, and I'm not a perfect parent. So that was like oh, my one shining light. I was, was going like, to say, oh my I, gosh, am, I held it together. I'm so proud of you. And <laughs> I am so like, I want to be like that. I had a seventh grader who boy, you know, my son who like first week of school, I get a call from the principal's office. And I'm like, what? And it was something like that, something totally stupid. Cause seventh graders don't have brains yet, <laughs> especially boys. And like, I didn't even need to do anything and it made me feel so like I felt terrible because like the principal just said, well, I've got to call your mom. And like he went in the other room and puked in the garbage. (laughs) And I was like, "Okay, that probably means I am not doing I get scared to death. And I was like, that's terrible. So, yeah, the opposite of your story is my story. And we, you know, as parents, I think that's such a great thought of really calming down you know, regulating your own emotion, being able to take a breath, not lose your mind on them. And yeah, like that is your that's reaction huge. for your child or is it more for you? I say this to my husband all the time when he gets irritated at another driver. I'm like, is that reaction going to help anything? Like, or is it going to make things better or worse? Or, or is it just making me feel better yes, to yes. like get angry? And yeah. when we parent and grandparent, I'm the grandparent in the bunch of us, um, we have to take those moments to pause and, and say what's helpful, what's the most helpful right, right. to remind them they're loved. Yeah. And the most helpful long term, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't think he's ever going to pull a chair out from underneath someone again. I've oh. learned. I was going to say that's probably him, all you need. Yeah, it's yeah, not like, going to change. Yeah. You know, he he already learned that, and so, but it is hard to do that in the moment sometimes. But yeah, just taking that, I mean, even like a couple breaths or five minutes or a day before you, you know, address it and yeah. create consequences if you need to. But yeah, I, I think that was a big a big takeaway for me. Um, just you got you got to just be calm parenting. Yeah, <laughs> right. which is yeah, again, which not hard. <laughs> not my strong suit, but um yeah, I I think I hadn't ever made the connection to my reaction to other things versus what they would think how I would react for something, you know, mm-hmm. more serious or, you know, something that's of a sexual nature that that is a problem. So, yeah, I I just didn't make that connection. That's yeah. that's fantastic advice. Um I want to continue this conversation. We'll do that when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. I'm here with Dr. Madsen, uh Susan Madsen with the Women Utah Women's Leadership Project and Casey Maloof with the Maloof Foundation. Uh, we are having a great conversation, and we were having a, a really fun conversation in the break that I actually want to like re up here on air. Um, I was telling the story. We're we're talking about how you know how we there's a, there's a preventative piece that maybe we haven't talked about yet, and I, it's kind of the way I've parented my daughter and how I've you know my sort of leadership style when I'm um, in in a leadership position over young women or have stewardship over young women. It really is this idea like I I I was I was telling the story of you know I I go to girls camp I'm a, I'm a young women's leader and uh we we do a of course I I kind of said this is what we're doing and I, I don't know that you know the other the male leaders thought it was a great idea but I did it anyway cuz that's how I roll <laughs> Uh, but I said, we're going to take these girls, we're going to go kayaking, we're going to go cliff jumping, we're just going to, we're just going to have like a really cool adventure. And there were a lot of girls that were like, I don't, I don't dare jump off the cliff. It's so, it's too high. And I, and I was pretty persuasive. I was pretty, uh, urgent in my, in my encouragement to, to let them know that they could do it and that they would really feel excited about themselves when once they did it and jumping off that cliff is really really tough but I think it's a metaphor not only metaphor but it actually is a a physical feeling when you do something that's really um difficult something you don't want to do you know initially that like you're really scared to do but you do it anyway I think that's part of a prevention piece where if we have girls and young women and women who are confident in who they are, who will tackle anything, who will say what they think and tell somebody that's trying to hurt them that that's not okay. 
I think that's a prevention piece, yeah. don't you? I do. And that there's so much research around this topic. Um, and, you know, when you look at estrogen and testosterone, and we know that, that boys grow up to, to be more risk takers. Yet there's some socialization elements of this as well. And I, I was just speaking about this this morning um, to a group. And, and there's a very strong what's called benevolent sexism here in the state. And that's when – and by the way, when I moved here a couple of decades ago – I said, why do they have girls resort here instead of girls camp? <laughs> like everybody like is protected and do easy things. And I'm like, man, if we had pioneers today, they would all die, you know, those, yeah. oh, because you sure. have to be tough. So what a study that was published two years ago said that already at the age of three, and you see this more in these homes with great fathers, but they're so protective. They're being taught that they need to be protective. But what the research says, by the age of three, girls compared to boys are already asking for help three times more. And that comes somewhat from mothers, but more from fathers who are doing this, you know, thing of protecting their girls and protecting instead of really helping them do those risks, encouraging those risks, get down, you know, play sports, whatever, whatever else, but doing hard things. And some people will think, well, what does that have to do with the rest of their lives? Oh, if you're already socializing girls that they need help and they're not tough and they shouldn't do hard things, um, they're going to continue to do that. And therefore, we don't have the strong women that we have to have moving forward. So I know that was a long-winded answer. But my point is that we need to be more thoughtful about how we raise our girls. And raising can be from neighbors and church leaders and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. Um, More in that growth mindset, really that effort instead of ability. But I'll tell you, we, especially in the state of Utah, are are focusing on how cute our little girls are. And we talk about this, how beautiful and cuteness and fixed mindset kinds of things. And so they're growing up to think about their bodies and think about about how good they look and not how their brains work as much, you know, how, how strong they can be and how, how smart they are. So yeah. that's a few thoughts. Yeah, I think um, I feel like I keep bringing up um, our foundation program. So sorry, I'm not no, doing purpose. No, that's why we're we here. <laughs> we do have um, another um, initiative that we're working on also with Elizabeth Smart that she started. It's called Smart Defense, and it's a self, self-defense mm-hmm. for girls and women. Um, we're excited because this year um, in the fall – Southern Utah University adopted it as an as I an retweeted it because yes, I was so happy. <laughs> I have three uh, yes. kids that are students at SUU. I was thrilled to see that that's where she started it, and yes. I hope it spreads. I know SUU is amazing. They've been such huge supporters of ours. But I think, um, you know, I've sat in on a couple. I haven't been able to take the full eight week class yet, shamefully. But I've sat on a lot of the classes that that Mio teaches, and one of the big things she says is like the biggest thing that you can do to prevent um, an attack or someone from yeah attacking you is to use your voice and so like first class like she has these women stand up and yell and scream and say no and step back and no and that's she's like the biggest thing you can do is the way you carry yourself if you walk in a room and you look like do not mess with me or I will scream at you like yeah. you're way 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 less likely to be um, a victim of abuse or attack if it's all about like how you take up space and so teaching our girls that it's okay to use your voice it's okay to take up space it's okay to um, have aspirations outside of being a wife and a mother although that's super important if that's what you want but be being okay to look outside of that um, outside of that box that we kind of tend to put our girls in uh, I think is is so, so important. Um, you know, another interesting thing just with that class at Southern Utah University, it hasn't even been going. It's been a couple months now, but I think they're about halfway through the semester. But they've already had um, four girls come forward and say, I was raped. And because I was here in this class and I'm talking about these issues, like I'm going to report my rape. And four of the girls reported the rape out of 47. So that's that's Along the lines of the statistics we were talking about before, but um, and and then three of those girls decided to leave an abusive relationship, and so I think just that education piece where you're talking to your girls, like 
you can say no. You have a choice and you know, being okay taking up that space and not feeling like you're going to hurt someone's feelings because you don't want to have sex with that. You know, when girls yeah. do that, you know, yeah. they feel bad and they don't want to say no. And so they allow things to happen that they don't want to have happen. But I think it's so important for them to feel like they are strong and powerful and they can say no. Yeah. And Abby, I think there's a, another point. I love love this conversation. What we know from the research, however, is that still, even with self-defense classes and those kinds of things, that freeze thing that happens, I have not experienced my, myself. I just can't imagine. I get teary-eyed thinking about it. That freeze that happens is not – they're not un, in control of that. And oh, no. so yeah, that blaming. is definitely a, so if a you rate, don't yeah. act, even if you've had those and you what we see from the research and from I have had so many people tell me individual stories is that then they blame themselves and they because say I didn't do anything is, and I yeah. didn't say no and I didn't. And it is yeah. not their fault. Yep. Yep. And we have got to keep telling people yeah. that this is not shame on you. It's right. shame and, Ill, you know, on the person that did it in yeah. all ways. Absolutely. It's unacceptable behavior. And we need to lean in, get the help that we need to use our voices and speak out so that other people will speak out, too. There are we have our statistics, but what we know is and even more in Utah than the nation is that there's so many unreported cases. I mean, most of rapes and child sexual abuse have never been reported. Most. And we still have these statistics on. Yeah. So, yeah. and I think it's important too when you talk about that freeze. You know, there's, there's, it's it's a survival instinct. It is. It really is. It's you know, fight, flight, freeze, and appease. Where you will do anything if you have someone that's outweighs you by fifty, sixty, seventy pounds, and they are taking advantage. Like, you're not going to win in a fight. You know that. So it's it's survival. Yeah. So it's not even fear. It's more just like I've got to do what I've got to do to survive this. And, you know, and there's lots of different ways that people process and and, and uh, deal with that. And so I think just, again, kind of going back to the believing survivors, supporting survivors, giving survivors the tools that they need to, to heal. So, yeah. No, yeah. I love that. And again, back to what you said, Abby. Um, prevention, we have to, that's the area that we can do so much more work. It's, we turn how bad we are into an opportunity. <laughs> so, so what we say is we have immense opportunity to do better. And there are proven, research proven uh, ways to do that. And uh, Maloof and Sapria are all over that. We have some resources at the Utah Women and Leadership Project. Um, but I would love to, you know, if people are listening to this podcast um, and would love to have any more join us down at this event on October 26th um, to really think about how can we change things um, yeah, let's, at a bigger level even. Yeah, let's run through maybe, Casey, talk a little bit about your involvement on this uh, in this symposium. And let's let's talk about maybe some of those things that we're going to address, some of the the breakouts or, or you know these sessions that we're doing. Let's talk a little bit about that so people have an understanding of exactly what this is, and and we'd love to have any and all of our our listeners to to be there. And Abby, amazing. you're going to be there. I so. am going to Thank be you. there. I will be. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about this. Yeah, well, we're co-hosting and supporting this event. Um, really, like it's just a way to bring. People in the space, people who are interested, people who want to learn more together to kind of be able to understand the work that's going on, the work that Sapri is doing, the work that we're doing, um, and then talking about ways that you can involve yourself. So specifically, I'm on a panel where we're talking about how businesses can um, become involved, can involve their employees, can talk about it more. And so just being able to... Um, yeah, really kind of do that prevention work where we're talking about what can we do, how brainstorming it together, like what can we do to all come together and, and confront this? So yeah. one of the other panels, uh, Nubia Pena, who I work who with love. all of the time, <laughs> um, she and I co-lead for the governor, the equality and opportunity section of his roadmap. She's going to be um, moderating another one of the panels. And that one is specifically on... You know, sometimes we're segmented, segmented, I should say, in the work that we do and how actually we need to bring everyone together. How 
you know, partnerships, public and private partnerships can work together and how, you know, bringing in policy, public policy changes, um, changes in different ways. Just really, it's time here in Utah that we all like band together all the efforts and be really strategic, whether it's public policy or prevention efforts or materials for parents or whatever it is to really move the needle in more strategic ways. We can't just sit on this issue. We have to be more strategic as a society and have women and men, everyone linked together. And and so that panel is going to be great as well. The third panel choice, um, these are breakouts. I'm going to want to be in every single one of them, though, <laughs> um, is really exploring more deeply. I said this before, the connections between um, kind of the ACEs and, and the impact of those, all, all, you know, understanding all of that, those connections. So um, and it's, thank you. I mean, I think it's great. You're going to be able to be on that panel or moderate. No, you're going to be a panelist. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. Casey will be a panelist. Um, I I. I what you said actually rings really true. Bringing, I think Utah, that's Utah's superpower yeah. is really being able to have these public private partnerships. And, um, you know, that's in the work that we're doing at Show Up. It's that is what we're working through is just really bringing people together. What you said too about people sort of in silos. What we found in our work is that people are doing really good work and sometimes they don't know about each other. Yes. They don't know that Malou Foundation's working on this and maybe Sapria doesn't know that, you know, the organizations, you know, the, the different organizations are working on things. When our superpower is when we combine that, when we work together, when we when we have government entities that that can be involved in, you know, in in my organization to really highlight and and showcase what people are doing. Um, I think that's where we have the most uh, positive effect on on these issues. So you know, and and all this, what you also talked about is things that are connected. Um, you know, in our work, talking about foster care. I mean, I don't know the statistics for foster care. I probably should, uh, and maybe you do, Susan. But really. It, it's got to be higher for yeah. the child sex abuse. Obviously, there's reasons that they were removed. I want to say it's and like sixty percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's it has to be that you know. So sixty plus percent yeah. of these kids that that are in foster care have been sexually abused. So that's a whole group or population of of our children that have this ACE yeah. that, and that's just one. <laughs> Clearly there's more if you're in a foster care because yes. you've been removed and, and all the things that go with that. So, you know, this is something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and I just so appreciate the incredible work and, and bringing together organizations that are working on this so that we can, we can prevent this. We can have a generation of girls and boys that grow up in a world where they don't have to experience that. That's what we have to do. We cannot leave a world where one in three of our kids are getting sexually assaulted. We can't leave a world like that. I'm not okay with that. And I don't think any of us should be. And so whatever we need to do to, to bring this together, I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. And, and, and let me give you the last word. (laughs) No, I just, I, I really think I agree with you um, wholeheartedly. I do think that Utah is in a unique position where we're worse than the national average in all of these things, child sexual abuse, but sexual abuse for adults and domestic violence. But we have such good people here. And if we just shine the light on them, I think in, in a matter of a few years, we can flip and when people talk about us as Utah, look at the good work that Utah has done in halting, halting these patterns. So I think we have an opportunity right now at a chaotic time in history with things going awry in many ways to say this is a priority. Protecting our children is a priority. Absolutely. And to that end, and Casey, I'll give you the last word. Um, To that end, you know, really creating this department of families that we just created in the governor's cabinet. 
um, this is a priority for us. It's a priority for the state of Utah. Um, we're we're not okay with this statistic and these statistics and these data. We're not okay with that, and and we need to be the the state of families, and that means all families in all ways, whatever they look like, <laughs> and that means the best supports to make sure that they have the resources they need to thrive. And and Casey, I will give you the last word and yeah, and uh, talk about uh, your the important things that you're working on. Yeah, I just I just wanted to say that I you know I'm excited about the symposium. I do think that this isn't such a huge issue. It's overwhelming when you think about it and when you're in a position where you're trying to make change. So I think it's so important that we all come together. Like we were saying just not no one organization, not just the government. It takes a whole it takes everybody together, not just one person cannot do it alone or one organization. So just being that collaborative mindset and how do we come together and, and create change. So Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the program today. And uh, we look forward to the symposium. Thank you so much. You can join the symposium uh, that's called Affecting Societal Change for Child Sex Abuse Symposium. You can find more information about Dr. Susan Matson's work with Utah Women's Leadership Project, Casey Maloof and the Maloof Foundation, as well as Sapria on our show notes. Thanks for being a friend. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.